This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome back to the Money and Markets podcast. My name's Tom Selby and joining me this week, as always, is Dan from Shares Magazine. Hello. This week, we're talking about the bombshell dropped by Amazon during its bumper fourth quarter results and why pigs can fly when it comes to Moon Pigs shares. So I'm also going to talk to James Spence from Cerno Global Leaders Fund about why he's one of the few global equity fund managers who doesn't invest in the fangs, which is Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix and Google. And Tom and I will also talk about developments in the buy now, pay later story. That's right. We'll also be digging into the postbag once again to answer a listener's question on pensions. Obviously, my favourite bit of the podcast. Um, This week's we'll be talking about collecting free money from your employer via workplace pensions and whether you can then redirect that money into a pension to manage yourself. But first up, as always, we've got the markets. So, Dan, what's been happening over the past seven days? Well, markets had a good start to the year. Then they sort of just drifted for quite a while. So it was, it was a fairly sort of miserable end to January. But February sort of picked up a bit. I mean, we've had some data showing that the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine is highly effective when there's a 12-week gap between doses. And that sort of reignited a bit of optimism in the market. So as we're recording this, um, Europe and Asian shares were, you know, were having a very good day. Um, the FTSE 100 was up a bit. So yeah, I think it's, you know, I think the markets needed a, that sort of hope again. You know, when does society reopen? And mm. of course, the UK is is doing very well in terms of the vaccine rollout. Um, and you know, any any sort of positive signs is always good for the market when it comes to sort of um, trying to analyse what's the next sort of twists and turns with the pandemic. But um, really, on on sort of the, the company news side of things, it's been dominated by uh, American companies reporting in recent weeks, and. Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft, and they've all beaten earnings expectations, which is very interesting. You know, obviously, this shows earnings are accelerating faster than people expected. You know, certainly, their balance sheets look pretty strong. Um, they've been all been trimming costs, and you know, clearly demand's picking up. So it's it's very interesting times. But what what this perhaps isn't translating into is runaway share price reactions. One might question whether a lot of this good news that their reporting has already been priced into the stocks mm. but it, it's definitely quite interesting so obviously mentioned amazon there that they've just reported fourth quarter earnings very very strong but you know this news is perhaps overshadowed by the fact that jeff bezos the chief exec and the founder of the company um is going to switch roles so you know, it, it, i don't think people saw this coming very soon they thought that, that oh jeff was going to be um, staying in the hot seat for a very long time, but he's moving to the position of executive chairman. So, you certainly when I woke up this morning, I saw lots of people on social media saying, "Oh, look, he's leaving the company," but he's not mm. leaving the company at all. Yeah, he's yeah. moving to a different role. So, the the chairman's job is to keep the chief exec in in place, really, and just oversee everything that's it's going on. So, he'll actually be um, very tied into 
you know, from a strategic point of view, what's what's happening in the business. Of course, he's still a major shareholder as well, so he's still still got a lot of influence. Um, but you know, he, he sort of perhaps changing roles at a very interesting time of the business because you know, as those figures show that we just reported, saying that, that you know, they're ahead of expectations, the business is doing very well. The retail and the web service businesses are thriving. Groceries, it wants to be bigger, and it's probably. Uh, you know, there's a lot more it could do there, but I think you know, cloud computing it does very well, but it's very competitive space. Um, and Amazon's also among a group of big tech companies which are under the spotlight of regulators and politicians mm. who've got big concerns about them wielding too much power. So, uh, someone I saw a very you know, tongue-in-cheek comment on on Twitter this morning saying he's he's moving positions. Um, at, at its prime, at the prime of the company, and obviously a play on the words of um, its prime service. But <laughs> I think, you know, I don't think he's moving roles because the company is coming under regulatory um, sort of scrutiny. I, I just think it's just a, perhaps he, he thinks it's it's in such a strong position now, it's it's time for someone else to come in. And actually what they've done, is they're, they're promoting the boss of the cloud computing side, Andy Jassy, to, to be the new chief executive. But you know, I did did a bit of maths working out what how much money you would have made on Amazon shares. I mean, so Tom, I, let's just check first. Mm. Have you, have you, do you own any Amazon stock personally? I do not. I do not. So you're all good there. I think that's some that, that you might have you might regret that when I when I tell you what the numbers are because <laughs> it, it floated on the market eighteen dollars a share in May nineteen ninety seven. Um, so if you'd invested ten thousand dollars. When it came to the market, uh, once you adjust for three different share splits that happened over the years, um, that investment would be worth today twenty two and a half million dollars. Wow! So, so when someone's when you were a young little child and someone says, "Oh, little, little Tommy, you should have bought some Amazon shares. You should have you should have listened to them rather than spending it on um on you know on a, on a." On a football stickers or something like that. So. Yeah, yeah, on sweets down the corner shop. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> that, that uh, my 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 mother and father weren't big into uh, into investing, so that that opportunity never came little Tommy's way, um, <laughs> and very unfortunate as as well, I think, because those numbers yeah. are are quite striking, aren't they? Yeah. So the, a week ago, we were talking about GameStop and mm. um, the hype of um, particularly people. Who have never traded or, or invested before, jumping in to buy this stock, and um, you know, it, I can't believe how much coverage it got in the you know mainstream news. This was this incredible is like news at ten uh, headline stuff, wasn't it? And it, you know, even even my wife, who never talks to me about anything to do with my job ever, came and said, "Oh, you know, what's this GameStop thing?" So it shows it's sort of it's become mainstream news. And, and you know, fast forward one week, GameStop shares uh, are, are plummeting. Uh, at the time of recording this, you know the hype has died down very quickly. Talk about you know a, a bubble that was burst yeah. um, no sooner it had been formed. But you know, I, but what's quite interesting to me is um, quite a few investment platforms, the, the places where you would go to buy and sell shares, are reporting that they've had massive in uh, influx of new customers, um, and particularly that they're younger as well. So yeah. I mean, Tom, you know, obviously, with your AJ Bell hat on, what do, you know? What have you seen in the market in terms of? Are we have we suddenly seen loads of younger people suddenly showing interest in investing? 
Yeah, so we 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 dug into um, the the activity of um, investors in January investing in in stocks like uh, like GameStop. So trying to take advantage of this kind of momentum play that's been going on and been driven by um, lots of lots of Reddit blogs amongst other things. So seventy three percent of those trades were within tax wrappers, which might be what you'd expect. So more in ICEs than than SIPs. But I think most interestingly was the 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 profile of those customers so just shy of 50 percent, so 49 percent of trades placed were by customers under the age of 30 79 percent of the trades played were placed were by customers under the age of 40 so very much a young person's game we're looking at here and interestingly 92 percent of those trades were placed by men so this is very much lots of young men looking to take advantage of momentum in certain stocks. And so those are those are the people who will have benefited from any price rises. And of course, those are going to be the people who are going to be hit potentially as the as the stock price goes down as well. So I'm kind of hoping that a lot of these people will stay interested in mm. investing rather than just sort of simply, okay, maybe it didn't quite work out for me. Um, you know, I'll move on. I just sort of treat it as maybe like having a, a go at betting on the horses or something. I, I do hope there's more people here because I think it's very important to develop the savings and investing habit as early on in your life as possible. But what I think is very important is to emphasize that they need to get their expectations right. If GameStop mm. was delivering one day 100% gain, next day 50% loss, um, I think people who are new to this must understand that that is not normal. Yeah. Barclays do this equity guilt study, which they produce once a year, which looks at historical returns for uh, investing in in shares and bonds and cash. So I had a quick peek at the the one, the most recent one, which came out in April 2020. And they say if, if you'd invested in US stocks um, over the last over the 50 years to the end of 2019, the average annual return was 6.1% after you've adjusted for inflation. So I think if, if if someone's new and interested in this, I think you really do need to be thinking about sort of seven percent ish annual returns on on average as a potential um, that you could get from investing in shares. Of course, there's going to be years where you might get more, or certainly there might be years where you get less or even lose money. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea of going into it thinking you can get 100% easily um, is, is a, not the right way to start. Yeah, um, I think that's, that's that's absolutely spot on, Danny. It, it reminds I so I went on to to do a a, a slot on. BBC um, BBC Radio and one of the to- topics was was GameStop and the the point I point I made it was quite a short slot but the point I made on there was um, if you're looking at a stock like that which has gone up seven hundred percent over I think it was the course of was it a week a week and a half two weeks crazy numbers um, if the fundamentals of that company haven't changed so there's no news um, as such about the way that business operates um, that would result in it being increased in value by 700%, then you've got to take into account the possibility that it might go down by 700% over exactly the same time period. Um, But like you say, I think there is possibly some positive things that can come out of this. And I think if people are dipping their toe into investing, some may have had a very good experience, some may have had their fingers burnt a little bit. But I think the fact that this has increased interest, I think, in investing could potentially be a good thing, as long as those people then take on those lessons and start to think about what their long-term plans are and how they want to invest over that longer time period rather than necessarily just getting into kind of day trading and as you say gambling in the way that you might do on the on the ggs 
Yeah. So other stuff in the markets this week's caught my eye is the the stock market debut of Moonpig. So this is mm. a, a online card retailer. Now Dr. Martin's floated the other day as well, and both stocks were up about twenty percent on their first day on the market. Normally, if you sort of if you did a sort of analysis of um, stock market flotations, it's quite common to see ten to 20% share price gain on the first day. Now, I, I talked a while ago to various people who work in corporate finance. So they're, they're the ones sort of helping to, to raise the money for, for companies coming to the market. And, and one of them was sort of saying to me that they, when they were at university, they actually did a study on it. And mm. they said, um, one of the principal reasons why you see this sort of 10 to 20% pop in the share price is that the, the, the companies have to sort of agree on a sort of a starting valuation um, that's attractive enough to to bring in sort of fund managers and pension funds to take the risk of backing it when a company comes to the stock market so to, to they tend to be priced 10 to 20 percent below their sort of the true worth of a business um, hence why you know that, that so you can see this is their little reward that they get immediately uh, it doesn't always happen, but it is it, quite common. But with with Moonpig and Dr. Martins, lots of people mm. are sort of saying, well, actually, look, they, they look really expensive in the first place. So they might struggle to to do well. And actually, I think they've surprised a lot of people how investors have been prepared to pay uh, you know, a higher price. So if, if, if they've, they've gone up 10, 20 percent, it means someone is happy to pay an even higher price. Um, and so I was having a look at some of the documents that come with um, what accompanied the Moonpig float. So some of the analysts will quite often um, produce what's called an initiation of coverage note. So this is where um, someone works for an investment bank or a stockbroker will will do a proper analysis of a business um, and talk about what the opportunities and the threats and stuff. And then um, it, it's kind of like a starting document if you really want to research a, um, a company well. And within the Moonpig one, it, essentially they're saying that if the company can persuade people to buy extra gifts like a, a chocolate bar or, or a bunch of flowers, um, as well as buying a gift card that Moonpig could see a big uptick in sales. Now, it, it seems quite straightforward. I guess it's it's that how are they going to convince people to spend that bit of extra money? Because going from three quid for a card to adding another 10 quid gift on top is quite, uh, it's quite an ask, I think, for, for mm. sort of the casual customer. But um, they're also saying it's it's a, it's a they're calling it a tech business, saying it's got um, very good use of sort of data. So when when you like, I bought at the weekend, I bought my nephew a card, and the first thing it said to me is like, "Do you want to set up a reminder? So we'll send you and it's say an email in a, in a year's time, a week before his birthday. So you've got time to do, remember to do another one." Um, again, you know, and this will say this is really interesting technology. To me, that sounds like basic common sense isn't it common sense business practice so um it's it's to me i think i'm gonna take a closer look at this business i think that um maybe there's more to it than i initially thought uh certainly not not gonna sort of turn my back and just say oh it's an online card retailer that's it it's a bit boring but um you know one of the analysts was suggesting the earnings guidance for the business is far too conservative because if there's ever a lesson to be taught to companies when they come to the market is do not disappoint in the first mm. year as a listed business because the investors won't trust you afterwards. So you quite often get people sort of saying, well, um, you know, as a business, there's no point um, 
been going in all guns blazing saying this is we're going to do this and not not achieving that sort of stuff so um it is quite common to, again to see newly listed businesses you know, do quite well in terms of um beating expectations in the first year so yeah one to watch so, uh, perhaps we'll, perhaps we'll uh, i might see if i can get a fund manager or an analyst on the on the show in the future can talk about um some stuff like moon pig so tom before i let you loose on this week's pensions question i just thought it was worth asking about investment pathways which mm. uh, something just launched i think a lot of people are going to come across it in the coming weeks and months but you know what on earth is this yeah, so uh, let me, I'll, go, I'll do, do a quick, quick crash course in investment pathways, and then perhaps we can pick it up in a in a bit more detail on a on a future podcast if there's a it's a little bit more more time available to us. So these are these are reforms introduced by the FCA, so the Financial Conduct Authority, the city regulator, that are aimed to help people make better decisions on how they invest their drawdown fund, and to make sure that. People aren't holding too much money in cash over the long term. So they did a study which suggested that some people were holding 50% or more of their pension in cash. And the concern there, of course, is that your money is going to be eaten away by inflation over time um, and you're not going to benefit from valuable investment growth as well. So what the FCA has decided is that everybody who enters drawdown. These are people who don't take regulated financial advice. So anyone who enters drawdown on a DIY basis or transfers from a drawdown account to another drawdown account. And so drawdown is where you keep your money invested and take an income as you want to take it throughout your retirement. Those people will need to be offered an investment pathway as part of the process they go through. So those rules have been in place since the 2nd of February, so all very new. The aim of those reforms is to make sure that People are engaging at least to some extent in the investments that they're choosing for retirement. So when somebody now goes into drawdown or transfers to drawdown, they'll be offered three options by their provider. They'll be able to choose one of these investment pathways. And I'll quickly explain what those different pathways options are, because that's important. They'll be able to choose to stick with their own investments. So there's no obligation on people to go down the pathways route if they don't want to, for example, if they've set up a SIP and they're already happy with the investments they've got. Um, or they can uh, choose their own investments that are different from the pathways investment. So those are the options that are available to people. In terms of what the pathways will look look like, so there'll be four different options for people who want to go down that route. So option one will be, I have no plans to touch my money in the next five years, and an investment fund will be offered for people who want to go down that route. Option two is I plan to use my money to set up a guaranteed income. So that's an annuity within the next five years. There'll be a different fund for that. Option three is I plan to to start taking my money as a long-term income within the next five years. There'll be a fund set aside for that as well. And finally, option four, I plan to take out all my money within the next five years. And so there'll be a fund for that. And the funds will be different types of funds depending on what you want to do. So for example, if you plan to access the money in the next five years, it's likely to be a fund that's somewhere closer to cash or in low risk investments because you're going to be accessing the money quickly. Whereas if you plan to take a long-term income, then it's likely to be a fund that's more focused on generating that income for you. But different providers will have different approaches, but this is something that people just need to be aware is going to be put in front of them when they enter drawdown or transfer to drawdown from now on. Okay, brilliant. So let's um, move on to 
pensions corner, as you love to call it, Tom. Um, <laughs> we so we regularly ask listeners to send in pension questions, and we also do the same uh, for Shares Magazine as well. So this week we've been contacted by Matt, who asks if he can transfer out of a workplace pension to his SIP at any time, um, perhaps every six months, or, or might do it once mm. a year. So he wants to know. If there's any specific rules around this, what, what do you reckon, Tom? Is this an easy answer to answer? Uh, well, there's no such thing as an easy answer in pensions, as you know, but I'll do my best. Um, so if you're probably worth giving a bit of background first. So if you're employed in the UK, you should be automatically enrolled into a workplace pension scheme. That's something we've talked about before on the podcast. So the rules require your employer to pay in a minimum of 3% of earnings between £6,240 and £50,000. That's in the current tax year. That changes from year to year into the scheme. You pay 4% of that portion of earnings in and an extra 1% comes by a tax relief. So essentially, 8% of a chunk of earnings goes into a pension as part of the automatic enrolment reforms. Now, as part of those reforms, your employer will choose a pension scheme on your behalf that meets a range of different criteria. I won't go into all of those different criteria, but there's lots of different criteria it has to meet in order to be what's known as a qualifying workplace pension scheme. But one of the more important and relevant ones in this question would be the the, the fact that your employer needs to have, needs to offer a, de- a default investment fund, which members will be placed into when they don't make an active choice. And the, that default fund will be subject to a charge cap of 0.75% a year. Of course, lots of providers charge less than 0.75%, but that's the most you can be charged if you stay within your workplace pension schemes default fund. Um, so in terms of the question, while your employer is required to auto-enroll you into a scheme that meets those conditions, there's nothing that should be stopping you from transferring those funds into an alternative scheme like a SIP, for example, if that's what you want to do. But I think it's probably worth just going through some of the things you should think about if you're going to make that decision. So firstly, and probably most importantly, if you do decide to do that, you'll be moving your retirement pot from an environment where charges are capped at 0.75% to a world where charges can exceed that level. So if you save in a SIP, then you'll have freedom to pick and choose an investment portfolio that suits your preferences and risk appetite, but you still need to make sure that you're keeping your costs as low as possible because the difference between even a small difference in charges can actually add up to thousands of pounds of difference in retirement. You also need to make sure if you're going down this route that you're comfortable managing two pension pots at the same time. So the auto-enrollment rules don't allow your employer to just funnel your workplace contribution straight into the SIP that you're choosing or into an alternative pension scheme that you're choosing. Your employer has to pay those workplace contributions into a qualifying workplace scheme, and that will be the scheme that it's chosen for the purpose of auto-enrollment. So there'll be some administration involved there that you'll need to think about. Um, And one final point, it shouldn't really affect automatic enrollment, but I think it's always worth flagging in terms of um, transferring from one pension to another. Before anyone transfers any pension, they should think, uh, they should check whether there are any valuable guarantees attached, which you might lose, or if there's any exit fees that you might have to pay in order to move your money, because either of those things might mean that transferring your pension is not the right thing to do. Now, generally, with automatic enrolment schemes, you wouldn't expect either of those to be in place, but it's worth checking just to be sure that you're not going to make a decision that you'll end up regretting in the future. Brilliant. That's very helpful, Tom. 
Um, so anyone, our listeners, who has a uh, pension question, as long as it's not too complicated, we'll try and answer <laughs> it on the podcast. So um, drop us a line, uh, which is um, podcast at ajbell.co.uk. So Dan, we've seen a boom in the use of buy now, pay later, and it's back in the news again this week. So what's been happening? So there's been a review into unsecure credit. And as part of this, one of the sort of the, the recommendations is that buy now, pay later providers should be regulated. Mm. And the, the Financial Conduct Authority, which is um, UK financial regulator, agrees as well. You're saying, yes, this is this is what should happen. So really what, uh, you know, for, for any listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with this um, concept, it's names like Klarna, mm. um, Clearpay and PayPal. They're offering ways for, for people, um, particularly in things like buying fashion online, to, to you, know, you click a button and say, here you go, I'll, I'll have this now, send it to me in the post, and I'll um, sort of worry about paying later later on. There's There's been some concerns that people have been looking at this as if it's just a payment technology, mm-hmm. a bit like Google Pay and Apple, and not realizing that it's it's a form of borrowing. So, I think there's a lot of people at home, perhaps if they're if they're furloughed um, or they've they've lost a job and they're and they're bored out of their mind. Mm-hmm. So they're they're ordering stuff online um, because it gives them something to look forward to, something you know coming in the post, and you know by now pay later essentially kicks any worries about affordability down the track and, and i think this is very dangerous so you don't want people to be amassing debts one if they don't realize that they're actually borrowing money and um two when we're in a situation where there's a lot of people might not be able to repay the money so i think it's it's we, we've actually discussed this on the podcast a while ago sort of the, the concerns that have been around the whole concept of buy now pay mm-hmm. later but um i think it's it thinks good that we, we're now going to have a situation where there'll be much more strict controls because there's five yeah. million people have used this since the start of the pandemic have you, yeah. have you ever done it tom i've so i've now i've not used buy now pay later but i do i do know people who have and the um it was interesting going through the report that the that chris wallard put, uh wrote um and that the fca is backing the recommendations of because the um the part that you mentioned there about people confusing it with services like Google Pay and Apple Pay, where you're just paying out of your debit card um, account and there's a kind of payment systems that are already set up, that rang true. And there were a number of people number of people I know who've gone through, um, as you say, who are a bit bored in lockdown, maybe saved a bit of extra money and so got a bit more money to spend on clothes and things like that. And so have gone through the process and have just assumed that using Klarna or something else is simply linking to their existing debit card and having no idea whatsoever that actually they're building up extra credit card or credit debt um, and that there's different risks associated with that and different things that they need to think about. And of course, the the danger with that as the danger with all credit cards, all types of credit when you build it up is that you don't pay it off and you end up racking up interest as a result of that over over the longer term. And it's the it's the same thing I think we always say on, on this podcast when you're thinking about um, taking on debt there's absolutely nothing wrong with that taking on taking on debt and having credit is a an integral part of how we all live our lives and it's an integral part of how the economy goes round but it's making sure that you know that you're taking on that debt and you've got a plan to pay it off ideally without racking up any interest at all so i think when i certainly when i read this report the most concerning thing was that people didn't realize that they were 
entering into an agreement where they were receiving credit from a company. And so I think it's definitely good news that the FCA is going to regulate practice in the, in this sector. And I think, as you say, the backdrop in terms of <clears throat> in terms of uh, COVID and financial resilience really going down. Lots of lots of people are doing very well during COVID financially in terms of uh, people who've kept their jobs, uh, might have seen their outgoings go down by quite a lot. And I think around 16 billion of um, unsecured debt has been paid back according to the Bank of England during that period. But I think what we've got here is a really divided country where some people are finding themselves in a financially better position, but lots and lots, millions of people are finding themselves in a really difficult financial spot and it's making sure that those people are looked after and don't make decisions which they're going to regret when they move into the future that's that's really important so i think it's really good news that the fca has has acted and acted quite quickly actually in this case yeah and just you know one final point is actually you know regulating it should actually bring the benefit of increased consumer confidence in mm. using these products so you know, say they they do have a purpose and i think if used wisely and um, people understand what's going on. You know, it, I don't think people are calling for them to be outlawed. Just mm. you know, to, to a bit more responsibility about the whole sort of process. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. To finish up this week's podcast, we thought listeners might like to hear from a fund manager who's doing something a bit different from the rest. Dan met up with James Spence from Cerno to talk about his fund, investing in names like Shimano and Aptiv, and his views on how markets might behave over the next few years. So over to you, Dan. James, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, it's been described to me that your your fund, Cerno Global Leaders, is a global fund with no fangs. And I think a lot of people would be surprised at that, thinking that if, if you're running a global fund, you need the likes of Amazon and Apple and stuff in it. So did you used to have any of these stocks or, or, or is there a real reason why you don't have them at the moment? Uh, none of those have been owned in the portfolio. Um, but the reasons, you know, behind owning them and not owning them are are a bit diverse. I mean, first off, it's, uh, it's a medium large cap portfolio. It's not a mega cap portfolio. So it isn't obvious that we're going to own, you know, the largest companies in the world, which some of these companies have become. Um, but they they fail consideration for, for, for different reasons. Uh, Netflix, for example, has a pretty extended balance sheet. Uh, with respect to social media companies such as Facebook, um, we're pretty leery about uh, companies where the customer is the product. Uh, and this is an area where we think you know regulation is coming because governments are typically seven, eight years behind. Uh, some of the innovations that are taking place. So I think that's going to get looked at a lot more carefully. And a company like Alphabet, better known as Google, it's very easy to see how they make money in their core business, which is advertising. But it's much more difficult to understand what their future plans are uh, because they're moving in many different directions at the same time. And of course, a company like Alphabet is uh, willingly opaque about their plans because they don't wish uh, their competitors to know what they're up to. So sometimes it's about product, sometimes it's about market position. Uh, it can easily be corporate governance uh, and it can also be balance sheets. So for different reasons, those companies have not made it into the portfolio. Uh, but I'll just make a wider point in technology, which is, you know, we see technology everywhere we look. Uh, so every one of the companies we own in some way or the other is going to be a 
a deployer of technology, an adopter, and a disseminator. So, what so in terms of um, performance? Plus twenty six percent in twenty nineteen, plus twenty seven percent in twenty twenty. So, you're obviously doing something right. Um, but it's quite interesting to know which which sort of stocks have really been driving performance for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the gratifying thing is um, the the number of stocks we own is limited at thirty, and uh, today in the portfolio there's just twenty four. But when you look back over the which stocks have performed well over any given years. It's always different, uh, and that's one of the features of equally weighting the companies. So at the beginning of any year, and a year is an arbitrary time period, really, for a long-term strategy like this, every company has a potential to be a top performer or contributor in any given year. And it just tends to be very different every year. So as the market, the wider market, goes through evolutions of sectors in favor, sectors out of favor, um, the hope is that um, our sector allocations are broad enough that will pick up different themes at different points in markets. But in the long run, uh, every stock in the portfolio is there to do a job. And that means that it's there for a reason. So how did you um, get into running this fund? What's, what's, could you just give me a bit of, a, bit of your sort of background and your sort of experience? Sure. Uh, we set up Cerno Capital 13 years ago, but actually... Uh, the work underlying this portfolio and the thinking behind it began a bit longer. So 20 years ago, I was given a job uh, where I was actually asked to connect um, what links uh, companies' return on capital with their share prices. So if we think about one of the typical attributes of a, of a great company that you might want to own for the long term, they often have higher than average, have higher than sector average margins. They often have very good return on capital. And ultimately, the share price will respond to these things positively if there's also growth. But how can you organize your thoughts such that you can spot and also reliably invest in that that growth? And the way in which I tried to do that 20 years ago, and it still holds true today, is to think about industry structure. So every company operates in an industry. So when you look at a company, you also need to look at the industry in which it operates um, and understand how it came to be where it is. And then based on that understanding, you can extend thoughts about how it might grow and remain a leader in the future. So the background to companies, their products and their success over quite lengthy periods of time is a really significant part of the consideration when we look at companies that you know, we might invest in. Okay, so you've got quite a lot of European names in the portfolio. I'm just wondering, is that because valuations are more attractive in Europe or simply where really good companies have got their stock market listing? Yes, it's more of the latter. So a country of domicile is a little bit interesting, but it's not that interesting because these are all global companies and many of them, most of them have outgrown their home markets. So we only consider investing in companies that are truly global in terms of operating in all the major geographic regions of the world. It matters not uh, where their home listing is. I mean, take a company like Linda that we own, the industrial gases company. We actually owned Praxair, which was a US business that merged back in with uh, Linda 
its European competitor. And you know where it is today, it's uh, it's headquartered and administered between between Dublin and 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 Guildford, in fact. But it's a it's a global business, and that's a great example because there you've got a concentrated marketplace. These two companies were once part of one another. They ceased to be part of one another in 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 I think 1918, and they came back together again exactly a hundred years later, uh, in in 2018 2019. So there's, I noticed you've only got one UK listed stock in there, which is Renishaw. Um, a lot of people seem to criticise the UK market for lacking special companies and having too many sort of old economy businesses. But you know, actually, you know, Renishaw is the best in class precision engineer. What 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 has sort of attracted you to own that stock? Well, we often say there's there there is a, a bit of a measurement theme going through the portfolio. So so we live in a world where calibration, uh, precision, measurement um, is critically important across um, most and many industries. Renishaw happens to you know operate you know supply a lot of the calibration uh, instrumentation for global hardware technology companies. But you can see that theme across the portfolio. We like companies that have um, deeply embedded intellectual property that potentially can have many customers whose customers are other companies, not necessarily end customers. Um, So for example, I mean, to connect a related story, um, you know, we have elements of the auto industry here through the, through Aptive, for example, which builds uh, what you might call the brains for motor vehicles. And it works for almost every major mark in the world. So we won't be the people who are making a bet on Volkswagen versus uh, Tesla versus BMW, but often we're down a level looking for the key suppliers with intellectual property, with know-how, with scale, who are supplying all of those uh, front-end consumer-facing companies. So I also noticed you've got Taiwan Semiconductor. I mean, this this stock is trading at all time highs, more than doubled in price in the last twelve months. But what's your sort of strategy in terms of when you want to perhaps take profit in something? Are you happy to sort of hold on to your winners, or um, you think there is always a point if, if a share price races ahead, you could take the profit and recycle that into other ideas? Or? Well, well, for TSMC or Taiwan Semiconductor to first, I mean, I've been looking at, because I used to be based in the Asian region, looking at this company for perhaps 25 years now, more or less their whole listed life. And it was always the case that fund managers, principally Asian, not global fund managers that invested the stock, always fretted about the, what they call the global economic, um, the global semiconductor cycle. So everybody assumed it was deeply cyclical. And therefore, it was given a rating appropriate for a cyclical company. And perhaps because Taiwan was a relatively new market for international investment 20 years ago, there was some discount there. So typically, people are used to sort of seeing it back then on a multiple of, you know, 10 to 15 times earnings. And clearly, it's lifted off that base because of the understanding, I think, that semiconductors um, are less cyclical than might once have been thought. Their applications are that much more broad, and there are various accelerators at force in the world, the Internet of Things, 5G, et cetera, that is going to 
you know, meaningfully increase the number of semiconductors. But your wider point about valuations, we adopt a growth at a reasonable price, which is sometimes called a GARP methodology. So, um, yes, you know, we'll always look into companies whose valuations have expanded, and there will come a point at which that expansion can just become too taxing uh, for the company to continue in the portfolio. We sold a company last year called ANSYS, which is an admirable company working in exactly that sort of nodal place that I described earlier. It does um, builds and designs prototype testing systems. So it's used by any company that wants to build uh, any sophisticated electronic hardware. But the multiple had got to a point where you're looking at growth, growth to price and you feel, well, actually, that's just pitched to absolute perfection. And so we took time on that company. It's still on the approved list. Uh, the hope might be that it comes back into the portfolio at a later stage. But sometimes companies will will leave the portfolio for that reason exactly. Yeah, I, I was interested got Shimano, the cycling components stock. I mean, the share price went sideways for about five years and really exploded last year, which I presume is linked to big surge in demand for bikes as we're, we're stuck in lockdown and people looking for different ways to exercise. What, at what point did you get into this stock? I was wondering, is it when you saw that this opportunity last year and the share price started to move, or, or would you be happy to buy into something when um, it seems that the market isn't really fussed about a stock for a while? Yes, Shimano is a good example of a company that was a sleeper, really, in the portfolio. As you say, it didn't do much for a while. But I think our, our conviction on that was high enough. And, and other companies where the market structure looks very good for the company. Shimano is the only bike component company that addresses all aspects of the market, right down from the professional cyclist team through to the everyday commuter bicycle. Um, the growth attributes. Uh, that we thought were uh, coming with respect to cycling, both conventional cycling and powered cycling e-bikes, was there. We could see the prospects for a little bit of delay in consumer demand for e-bikes in particular, because the price points are quite high uh, with the new models and even, even today. Um, so, of course, the thing we never know is when the stock is going to you know, really perform. And you're absolutely right in saying that the pandemic gave it a bit of a kickstarter to the stock. So you probably had three years of performance in one year last year with, with Shimano, I'd suggest. Yeah. So are you, how often are you going to actually see companies or, um, you know, perhaps meeting management? Because obviously if you're, if you're based in the UK, uh, I think lots of people will perhaps expect fund managers to have sort of offices around the world. But you know, Cerno is quite a small business, isn't it? I'm right in saying. Yes, we're a boutique asset manager and um, our office is in London. We're a little bit devolved throughout the, the country now, um, but you know, we'll be back in London soon enough. Um, we hop onto conference calls with management. Um, there's a big difference, I think, between the kind of inquiries, the kind of things we're interested in and what sell side brokers and analysts are interested in because they're just you know generally trying to trap down the variables that are going to push next quarter and this year's earnings um so we do engage with companies but typically what we do is we send them the questions on issues that we're interested in specific questions on on specific evolutions in their business or the marketplace um 
and you know we find that a lot more useful than than a very formulaic and um, you know dry encounter uh, that you typically have with uh, global corporate managements these days, um, who understandably have to be very careful as to what they say to any given analyst or any given investor. Um, so there's a lot of uh, background work that goes on on industries, on companies, right through throughout the ecosystems. And then there's quite a good deal of specific work uh, engaged with different different segments of companies' managements, yes. Yeah. And just, just finally, what uh, what's your sort of thoughts about um, sort of the next couple of years? It, it, you, you think that, um, you know, if the vaccine's rolled out, we'll start to see economies reopen and, and actually this is all going to be quite positive or you think actually it's going to be a, a much difficult environment for for lots of businesses and um, perhaps the market's priced in too much good news which might not actually come yes yeah, so valuations have risen so you're absolutely right to say uh, markets are priced in uh, some good news and i think that's warranted i mean we think we'll see extraordinary uh, economic growth rates in the world uh, as we come out of this and the effects of the virus are blunted and so if if we're looking at a company today we're at thinking about yes how they're managing the crisis but all these companies need to manage the recovery as well and on that count we're pretty optimistic because i think you're going to see two things in the world you're going to see uh many of the digitally enabled companies that have enjoyed some ramp in their demand actually holding up quite well in terms of growth but then you're also going to see this uh extraordinary uh recovery in the sectors and areas of human activity that have been suppressed. So travel, entertainment, et cetera. And the way we map through the portfolio is we track which companies have enjoyed earnings increases in expectations and which decreases. And there are more companies that have had, you know, reasonable, you know, significant decreases. And we own, for example, Heineken and LVMH two companies whose operations have you know, obviously been blunted, Visa as well, uh, by the lack of lack of travel and uh, diff- difficulty to congregate. So I think it's the balance in any portfolio between owning things that have been resilient and understanding that they can also do very well post-pandemic and also owning things where the recovery will, will, will come through uh, and on that count, you know, we're pretty optimistic and we, we, we do really believe that we'll see a very, very big resurgence in activity, um, you know, commencing some stage this year and developing from there. Well, brilliant. James, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Really fascinating to hear about your, your fund. She's the, the Cerno Global Leaders Fund. So thanks very much. Good. Thanks. Good to talk. Okay, that's all we've got time for this week. Next week's show has a very special guest from the world of investing. She's a rising star and a protege of one of the most respected fund managers in the UK. That's a great that's a great lead up, Dan. I can't wait to see that. You won't want to miss that show. Until then, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks, see you later. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply. 
and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.